Well, good morning. It is so good to see you uh, this morning on this weekend before the 4th of July. Uh, whether you are a member or a visitor or a regular attender, I want to welcome you here. My name is Pastor Jonathan, and you, I'm so grateful that you have joined us today. Church, I want to begin by giving a little bit of a report from our vacation Bible school that we had here at Mission Dorado. Uh, we had an amazing week. It was truly one of the best VBSs that I've ever been a part of in the sense that the church just enjoyed serving together and being together and everyone handled their roles and their jobs with gladness and enjoyed being together. It was also a record-breaking vacation Bible school in a lot of ways. Uh, first, I think it was the hottest vacation Bible school I've ever been a part of. Uh, on Monday, I think it was 111 or 112, and we had four air-conditioned units break and needed to repair, uh, but nobody complained. Uh, we just shifted a few rooms around to where everyone could be somewhat cool, and then we set up recreation on the patio with a Mr. Fan, and everyone just kept going. So I think we broke a record for the hottest VBS that I've ever been a part of, and probably many of us have ever been a part of. Also, it was a record-breaking VBS uh, for Mission Dorado since I've been here. Uh, so I'm coming up on being at Mission Dorado for five years, and this was my fifth summer here. I started adding that up, and I was like, wow, I didn't realize I've been here five summers. Uh, but this was my fifth summer here, and this was our highest kids event we've had by far since I've been at Mission Dorado. On Friday night, we had 95 kids here, uh, 40-something workers, and welcomed close to 100 parents in the doors. And so it was jam-packed. And it was unusual in the fact that usually by the time you get to the end of the week during a VBS, your numbers start declining. However, our last night was our highest night. We kept growing, and so on Thursday night was our highest attendance night. So if you see something out of place, uh, that's probably why. Give us some grace, uh, because every night with pickup, we probably had close to 250 people on our campus, so things got moved around a little bit, so give us some grace there. And I want to just take a moment and brag on our volunteers because uh, they knocked it out of the park. From handling that many kids to transitioning them and doing pickup and drop-off and then making snacks and crafts and music and, uh, and Bible study and missions and rec and all of the things, and then cleaning up every night after that many kids. Church, we are blessed and we have the best volunteers. Uh, also, it was another record-breaking VBS in which I think in a different way, in a weird way, Usually your oldest group, your fourth and fifth graders, are your smallest group. But this year, they were our largest group. And so on Thursday night, we had 26 fourth through fifth graders who gathered for our vacation Bible school. It was a great week. And on Thursday night, with a room full of parents and a room full of kids, I was able to stand right here and to present the gospel unashamedly with many people who had never been on our campus before. It was a great week. So thank you, volunteers, and thank you for church for supporting this ministry. It was a great week, and I'm so grateful uh, for you all. Uh, now, while we had VBS, I tried to walk around with each group and pop in with different rotations that they were doing. And at one point, I was walking around with the preschoolers, and I noticed that there was a few kids that you could tell that they had never been told to stand in a single file line before. Uh, if, you, if you're laughing, you worked with the preschoolers. And, and they had never been told to uh, do what the teacher had said. They had never been told to wait while the teacher said wait. And every once in a while, you would hear a teacher or a helper say, hey, I need you to wait, and I need you to come here. And you know what those preschool kids would say, don't you? I don't want to. Or I'm just doing this. What I'm going to do is just this. 
See, the pre-K kids, the preschool kids would speak with authority like they had the ultimate say. But in the end, what ended up happening? The one with true authority, in this case, the adult or the helpers, would end up with the child sitting down for snacks and sitting down in Bible study like they were supposed to. See, authority is a funny thing. Oftentimes, the ones who don't have it assume that they do. And good leaders with authority ultimately only want people to follow them because it's what's best for the person who is following. Now, last week, we took a break from our series in the book of Romans, and we began a new series uh, called Summer in the Psalms, walking through a psalm a week until school is back in session in August. And last week, we looked at Psalm chapter 1, and we saw the way of the blessed person, that the truly happy and content or blessed person doesn't walk, stand, or sit in the counsel or advice of the wicked, but rather they delight and they meditate or sit in God's word. And we discovered that true happiness and contentment comes from delighting in God's word. We also discovered that Psalm 1 and 2 are really closely interwoven. And in fact, they're the gatekeepers for the book of Psalms. See, when you go to Psalms 1 and 2, you see the themes that run through the entire book of Psalms. This week we'll be in Psalm chapter 2, and we'll discover that a person who submits and takes refuge in God's authority is blessed. But a person who doesn't submit to God's authority is headed towards destruction. So let's begin today in the book of Psalms, looking at Psalm chapter 2. So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you would take it out, turn to the middle of the Bible in the book of Psalms, and let's look at Psalm chapter 2 together. Psalm chapter 2. I've got to get there as well. It says this, Psalm chapter 2. Why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 begins with this rhetorical question of why do the nations even bother? See, David is shocked that the people of earth would rebel and would conspire against God Almighty. So the psalm makes it clear that the nation's attempt and plotting is in vain. And this word plot is very similar to the word that we saw meditate in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. See, the godly will meditate on the word of God, but the defiant nations meditate upon this hopeless rebellion against God and his authority. So why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Well, look at verses 2 through 3. In verse 2, we see that this is no like 
uh, small movement. This is no grassroots movement against God. But those who are against God are actually in the highest offices of authority. It says the kings of earth set themselves. This is a military language that's used here, which means that the kings of the earth are linking arms together and they're setting themselves against the Lord Almighty. And there's a thick irony in this text right here. It's the kings of earth setting themselves against the king of heaven. And in Psalm 1, we saw a call not to walk in the counsel of the wicked and to not stand or sit in their advice. And now in Psalm 2, it shows us what the outcome of walking with the wicked accomplishes. It puts you in an unwinnable situation. See, somehow thinking that you can stand against God who created you and who is holding all things together and that you can win. I mean, this is just insanity. I mean, surely their outcome will be the same of what we saw in Psalm chapter 1, verse 4, where it says they're like dust in the wind and no roots and they're producing nothing good for anyone and they're not even in charge of their own direction. But notice, not only do these wicked rulers who set themselves take counsel together against the Lord, but also against his anointed. Josh Smith had this to say about this verse. He said, they're standing in the wrong place. They're thinking in the wrong way against the wrong persons. Then in verse 3, it says they go as even as far to say that they want to tear off their chains and free themselves from their slavery to God. See, what was in the hearts of these wicked rulers now comes out of their mouth. They say about God and his anointed, let's get rid of them. This is how they see the authority of God in their lives, and they want nothing to do with it. And they not only reject his authority, but they're seeking to throw it off. See, they cannot stand the idea of King Jesus having absolute lordship and authority over their lives, so they declare that they are free from the Lord and that they are proud to be living in their wicked ways. I'm just going to pause here for a moment and say, I did not plan to preach this sermon on the Sunday before the 4th of July, uh, that we're, this holiday that we're about to celebrate in our country. I did not plan to preach a sermon about America and its need for repentance. However, when I got into this psalm, I realized what this Sunday I was preaching it on, and I thought, how fitting of a message on this particular Sunday. We're ending Pride Month in our country. And we're beginning a holiday where we celebrate our country's birthday. And here we find a psalm that speaks about the wicked and how they are proud to be living in their wicked ways. That sounds an awful lot like our country right now. Adrian Rogers famously once said, The sin that used to slink down the back alleys now parades around Main Street. Jack Graham said this past week, There was a time when people were ashamed of their sin. Now it seems as if people are no longer ashamed of their sin, but they're celebrating it. And if we are no longer ashamed of our sin, then how can we repent and turn from our sin? See, what God is calling us to do throughout the whole of Scripture is to turn and repent of our sin. But what culture today is being led to do by the evil and wicked ways of the enemy today is to celebrate our sin. And church, I'm just going to be real honest right now. Our country doesn't need anyone else making them feel really good about themselves. We need the Holy Spirit to show us that we are the wicked ones and that our only hope and our only uh, hope is in the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ alone. See, as preachers often say, our hope is not in the White House, but our hope is in God's house. 
Remember what the psalm says in Psalm 1, 4 through 6 about the wicked one. It says the wicked are not going to stand on judgment day before God. They're not going to stand with those who are saved on judgment day. And they are going to perish in their wicked ways. Church, our world is in a crisis. And the only cure is the gospel. Our world is seeking hope in any way that they can find it. However, the only hope that any of us have is in Jesus Christ alone. Our world is seeking love anywhere that they can get it. However, the true love and the only love that we truly know is the love of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us while we were still sinners. See, church, when are we going to fall on our knees and cry out to God and get serious about the lostness in our community? We've got so much passiveness that's just built up in us, and I've got it as well, and I'm praying through it about the lostness and the people that we know that are around us that are dying and they're going to hell, and people surrounding us who are celebrating their wicked ways that are leading them to destruction. And hey, church, this is not a call to be a jerk for Jesus in any way, not screaming louder, out loud, or online, but this is a call to remain steadfast in prayer and then not relent in proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when's the last time you've been broken over a lost person enough to come to the altar and to pray for them? When's the last time you've been broken enough over a lost family member that you've invited them over to tell them, hey, Jesus still saves, and I love you so much. I want to tell you the most loving news that I can possibly share is that there is hope in Jesus Christ alone. There is true love found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone saves. See, the Holy Spirit has commanded and has commissioned us to share the gospel. And all the world may seem, although the world may seem strongly opposed to the message that we are sharing, I, for one, believe that God is still in the business of changing hearts and saving lives. That the Holy Spirit can still cause people to hate their sin and to seek after Him. So let's keep proclaiming the truth. Let's keep proclaiming this message and let's let God's work do the calling. Let's share the message of Jesus Christ with all that we meet. The time for complacency is over, but the time for commissioning is now. Let's get after it. Let's continue reading in verses 4 through 6. It says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what is God's response to the rulers of earth coming together, all united against a ruler of heaven? Look at verse 4. He laughs. But not only is God laughing, but notice God's posture while he's laughing. What's he doing? He's sitting down. See, God doesn't even rise to acknowledge their threat. It's this imagery of the nations are raging like they're plotting, they're gathering, they're setting, they're taking counsel together. They're very busy plotting against the king of the universe. But then God, well, God's just sitting in the heavens unbothered. Like God's not pacing the floor with anxiety. God doesn't head to the situation room to assess the situation with his team and assess the threat. God doesn't head for the bunker in case there's an attack that's coming. God is just sitting in heaven unbothered and chuckling at their attempts. See, God is beyond the reach of human rebellion, and God laughs at their rebellion against him. And you may say, well, what's so funny? Like, why is God laughing here? Well, hear me, when God laughs, it's not funny. 
God's laughing at their pathetic attempt and thought that he might be impeached like some mere earthly ruler. Psalm 37, 12 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. See, the Lord is holding them in derision. He's scoffing at them. He's laughing with disbelief. It's almost this imagery of like when a child, like maybe a three or four-year-old gets really mad and they come at their father like swinging, right? And the dad just puts his hand on his forehead, right? Like they're coming swinging. And like the dad's sort of hurt that they're coming after him. But then he's also like sort of laughing at their attempt at the same time. Like I'm just holding you back with my hand and you're giving me everything you've got. That's the imagery here. See, the wicked rulers of our day and the wicked in our world today may be laughing at God and his ways now, but God will have the last laugh. And we look at verse 5, and not only does God sit and laugh, but then we see that he speaks to them. And when God speaks, he will speak to the wicked in his wrath, and this will terrify them. AJ, I love the way that the KJV puts it here. It says that God vexes them in his sore displeasure. In other words, God's not very happy with you right now. When I was growing up, oftentimes the worst thing that my father could say to me is that he was displeased with me, that he was disappointed in me. Like that weighed much heavier than any other type of punishment. Like give me all the spankings in the world, but don't tell me that you're displeased with me. In the same way, when my father told me that he was proud of me, and even today when my dad tells me he's proud of me, like there's no greater compliment that I can receive But I'm just saying, when God is displeased in you and he expresses that, like he vexes his concern to you, that is terrifying. See, God's not just a God of love. He's also a God of wrath. We saw that when we looked at Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is God's wrath? Remember, God's wrath is a settled fear and a righteous anger. It's not like our anger where it's momentary or emotional and often uncontrolled, but God's wrath is always completely righteous and justified. And the wrath of God is coming for all people. And against those who are rising up and making plans against God, he will speak to them in his wrath, and it will, and it is terrifying. See, we know this truth. God is holy. He's perfect. He's set apart. We learned that this week. There's nothing uh, that God has ever done or can do that is wrong. But yet we as humans, we're all sinners. Like we've all done something wrong. We've all lied or stolen or cheated. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And this creates a problem because our sin separates us from God in this life and the next. And therefore, we need help because we know that God's wrath is towards sin and sinners, which we all are. So what hope is there? Well, our hope is in Christ alone. Because we know that God loved us so much that he sent us a rescuer, that he sent help, that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth being fully God and fully man. And Jesus lived a fully perfect sinless life here on earth, but yet he went to a cross and he died for your sins and he died for my sins. Three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. And we know this truth from Romans 3.25, that Jesus Christ went to the cross as a payment for our sins And his death on the cross satisfies the righteous wrath of God against all who cry out to Jesus for salvation. So that if we've cried out 
from Jesus for salvation, that his blood covers us. And we don't have to remain separated from God. We don't have to remain unsatisfied. But we've been rescued from the wrath of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we repent of our sins, if we believe in Jesus Christ and we follow him, then we will be saved from our sin that separates us from him. So instead of today us being the one who conspires against God, we can be the one who is forgiven by God. See, in verse 5, God expresses his righteous anger for those against him, but who are against him. But now look at verse 6 where God continues to speak. So we saw in verses 1 through 3, the wicked rulers claimed that they would throw off the Lord's sovereign rule over them, but they don't know that God is supremely sovereign and he's in complete control of all things. So God simply responds, As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. See, there's this huge tension here. The kings of earth have set themselves against the Lord of heaven and earth and his anointed. And God laughs and he says, that's cute, but nothing on this earth can stop my sovereign agenda. Further, God declares, too late. I've already set my plans in motion and nothing on earth can stop the power of the king of heaven because, by the way, I created everything. I am God and I will have the last word. Now, for us as a culture that has an authority crisis, that's sometimes shocking to hear, isn't it? Like We sort of hear that and it sort of makes us feel a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? But God's word never changes. God is in control. God is sovereign over all things. And God's plan will prevail. And he is the ultimate authority. See, when it's the wicked versus God, God will win every single time. You may say, well, what do we do with the wicked of our day? Well, we keep proclaiming God's word. See, God's word is how we know for sure 100% that God is speaking. And we're simply messengers to deliver his word. And our prayer is that when God speaks to the wicked, that it will terrify them of his fury and they will turn from their wicked ways. Not only that, but we also know that God, like a good father, desires what is best for us. Like his ways may not make sense to us, but we can trust that they are good for us. So when the hot topics of our day come up, like gay marriage or trans or binary, non-binary people come up, we recognize that God's design is what is best for us and for society. Hey, maybe you're here today and you're struggling with that tension in our society. Like the tension between what God's word says and what culture says about gender and marriage or what culture says is right and wrong versus what God's word says is right and wrong. I want to just tell you this lovingly. God has wonderfully made every human being. God formed every human being. He knit them together in their mother's womb. And he has made you and I both perfectly. But the lie of our day is that your God-given gender is not enough. Or that God's design for marriage is not enough. But God designed us all perfectly and he made us in his image. We are his image bearers and he set before us the paths that are best for us. And the truth is this, our ultimate satisfaction and delight is found when we find our full satisfaction in God alone as our creator and redeemer. So today, if the wicked try to lead you astray and tell you that uh, your gender is not enough, or the wicked of your day try to tell you that God's design for marriage is old-fashioned, trust in God's word. That God's design is what is best for us and for our society. See, God is seeking you 
trying to help you from getting, God is seeking to keep you from getting hurt. He's telling you what is best for you. I use this imagery all the time. I've got a three-year-old. His name is Timothy, and he's as hard-headed as I was when I was three and still can be. And he, um, you know, what if Timothy was like, hey, there's this awesome playground right next to our church, but Faldry is where the fun is, right? At 5 p.m., like playing Frogger with the kid, with the cars that are coming 60 miles an hour while they're texting and driving. That's where the fun is. I want to go play in Faldry Road at 5 p.m. and dodge the cars that are coming. And I say, no, I love you, son. Like, I don't want you to go play in the street because I'm trying to keep you from getting hurt. I don't want you to get hit by a car. I want what is best for you. And he looks at me and he says, Dad, you're just trying to keep me from having fun. Like you're trying to keep me from exploring what is fun and exciting. And I say, no, son, I just love you. And I want to keep you safe. Ultimately, that's what God is doing for us with his word. We may not understand his ways. Like a three-year-old doesn't understand why he can't play in the street. But we can trust that God knows what is best and he loves us. And he's trying to keep us from getting hurt. Ultimately, the wicked in our day, they're declaring themselves as an enemy of God, saying that they know better than God. And God is trying to help us flee from their destination of destruction and to flee towards his invitation of care and love and freedom and blessedness. Hear me say this lovingly. God's design is what is best for us and for our society. Let's continue reading in verses 7 through 9. It says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will, take the nations your, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 7 begins with this response from someone else speaking. See, after God spoke to the wicked and declared that he set his son, now we hear his son speaking. Well, what does his son say? First, he says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have become your father. Well, who is this referring to? Well, in many ways, the background of this text is the Davidic covenant that we see in 2 Samuel verses 7, uh, 14, where it says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. However, in this instance... What we're seeing is a very prophetic writing. This was written by David. We know that. It doesn't say that here, but we know that from Acts chapter 4. And this was written long before the time of the New Testament. But yet this language that God was writing here was referring to a very specific person in a very prophetic way. Well, who was it? Listen to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. It says this, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So by God's proclamation here, Jesus is the Son of God. And God is saying, Hey, you may have set your kings up here on earth, and you may have set yourselves against me, But as for me, I have set my king in his place, and no one will topple him. And his name is King Jesus. So what is God saying about his anointed king in this moment? Well, look at verses 8 through 9. 
He says this, God saying in this moment, not only does my anointed have true authority, but he also has total authority. See, Jesus is the one who will reign over all the nations. Verse 9 shows us that Christ will also judge all the nations. For those who submit to his authority, he will watch over them like a shepherd guarding his sheep. But for those who reject his authority and come after his sheep, they're going to be met with an iron rod. And I, for one, don't want to be met with an iron rod that Jesus Christ is holding, right? Don't come after God's children, or you will be broken like hardened clay, broken in pieces. That's strong language right there. See, Jesus has true authority, and Jesus has total authority. But that's not it. Jesus doesn't just have true and total authority, but he's also a king whom we can take refuge in. Look at our last three verses, verses 10 through 12. It says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Verse 10 begins with a call to surrender. It issued uh, to the authorities that plan to lead this human rebellion. And God is saying to these rulers, you best be wise about these decisions that you're about to make. Be warned, I have my plan in place, and you will not win. In the words, God is saying, be wise, don't be foolish. Don't start something you can't finish. When I was a kid, one of the favorite things I used to do with my dad is to wrestle with him. And uh, we'd wrestle, and and he would always uh, jokingly tell me, hey, don't start something you can't finish. He'd tell me that in a playful way. However, God here is not playing. God is literally saying, hey, you kings, you rulers of the earth, you people who are coming together against me, that are seeking to conspire against me, to plot against the Lord and his anointed, you need to recognize you are not going to win. So consider the consequences of your choices. But rather, you need to do what verse 11 says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. Uh, That sounds a little backwards to our minds sometimes, doesn't it? Like, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Like, I thought God loves us, so why should we fear him? We saw this when we looked at 1 Peter a few years ago, 1 Peter 2, 17, where, and we read it before our service this morning, where we're told very clearly to fear God. We're not told to fear unbelievers or other believers, but we are told to fear God. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, we should allow our childlike fear of offending God to restrain ourselves from sin. We have a big time fear and respect and honor problem in our culture today, don't we? And we're seeing firsthand where that leads It leads to destruction, the destruction of cities, the destruction of those who are to protect us, the destruction of commerce. And see, the lack of fear, respect, and honor can lead to destruction. But what God is saying here is for those who rule the earth, for those who think that you're going to come together against the king of heaven, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, or look at verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Or in other words, you submit to God's son or he will be angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. You're not going to win. It's not going to happen. You're not going to come against God and win. 
That is the message of this psalm to the wicked of, of his day and of our day. This is strong language not to, been ta- not to be taken lightly. You come against God, you plot against God, you plot against the Lord or conspire against the Lord, and this will end in your destruction. It's not going to go well for you. Now remember the whole of this. We said that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 go together, and they're like the gatekeepers of the book of Psalms. Well, how does Psalm 1 begin? Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk, stand, or sit in the counsel of the wicked. But rather, blessed is the man who delights and meditates in God's word. Psalm 2 ends this way. Blessed are all who take refuge in God. Hey, today, here's the deal. Psalm 1 and 2 have a really simple message that I think is huge for us today. First, if you go against God, it's going to end in your destruction. Second, Fear God, follow Him, and take refuge in Him, and you will be blessed. I've just got three short takeaways for us today. There are things we've already hit, but I just want to solidify this. Three takeaways that we can take from our scripture today. First, we need to be about sharing the gospel. What should we do with the wicked of our day? We should be about proclaiming God's word. Hey, church, the time for being complacent is over. The time for commissioning is now Why? Because those who go against God are headed towards destruction. So let's tell people how they can truly be satisfied in Christ alone. See, many are saying that many things lead to happiness and satisfaction, but if you've lived long enough and you've uh, wise enough to look around, you can see that that is not true. But the truth is this. Our ultimate satisfaction and delight is found when we find our full satisfaction in God alone as our creator and our redeemer. Second is this, hey, fear God and train up others to fear God. We have a big time fear, respect, and honor problem in our culture today. So today, if you're a parent or a grandparent or anyone who has influence over the next generation, would you teach this truth of this psalm to them? Teach 1 Peter 2 to them that when we don't fear God, it leads to our destruction and to others' destruction. Would you Allow your childlike fear of offending God to restrain you from sin and to train up those in your care to do the same. Last application is this. We need to be about praying for the leaders of our country that they would fear God, submit to him, and follow him. On this Sunday before the 4th of July, we need to be reminded that whatever we may think about the ruler's of our day is negligent to Scripture's command to honor our leaders and to pray for them. One of the most honoring things we can do for our leaders and glorifying things to God that we can do is to pray for the leaders of our country, that they would fear God, that they would submit to him, and they would follow him. So Christians in the room today, would you pray for your leaders? We may never get an invitation to the White House, but we can pray that the Holy Spirit would be made known and would be known there. And never forget to spend time on your knees for your government officials, that God would teach them the truths of this psalm. that The way of the wicked is destruction, but blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Lord. Our big idea for today is this. God is sovereign over all things. Those who take refuge in him are blessed. Hey, in just a few moments, we're going to have an invitation song. Maybe today you just need to come forward. You need to pray over 
someone that you know that's lost. Maybe you need to pray for our country. Maybe you need to pray over uh, yourselves that you would uh, walk in the way of the Lord. Maybe you need to come talk to me and and have me pray with you or, or you need to ask questions about how to become a believer of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is that you need to do in this moment, let's do it. Church, I love you so much. Let's pray.